Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Lord Jesus, we've sung this morning already of your unmerited, unconditional, unlimited grace towards us. Your love for us, demonstrated most clearly at the cross. Lord, we are humbled that you would pour out mercy on people like us. We ask that this morning that your love, your grace, would continue its work in us of changing us to be more like Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand and receive all that you have for us in your word. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I think one of the most um, exciting and unique events, most fascinating events in all of nature is the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. How many of you kids did that this summer? A couple of you. You see this lumpy, kind of creepy, crawly, slow-motion, little multi-legged creature who spends all his time eating leaves, crawling around in your mom's garden or flower bush or something outside. And then eventually that little lumpy, crawly, slow creature finds a good spot to camp, and he encases himself in a chrysalis, this hard shell. And then after a period of time, what happens? A totally different creature emerges from that chrysalis, totally unrecognizable. No more lumpy, creepy-crawly, slow, leaf-munching little worm. It's not just a change in size or a change in color, but that creature has undergone a complete change of form, broad paper-thin wings, these delicate long legs, the ability to flit and fly from bush to bush and drink nectar out of the flower blossoms. It's a pretty amazing transformation, and probably every Kansas kid with a handy mason jar has witnessed this miracle. It truly is a miracle. Those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have turned from our sin, and placed our faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, we also have experienced a profound transformation. Because of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been made new. We've been made spiritually alive. The old self is cast off like a crumpled cocoon, and a new self has been put on. In Colossians 3 verse 9, just a little Before our text, Paul reminds us of this. He says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Even more amazing than the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly is the transformation of a sinner to a saint. And this transformation of the self, Paul tells us, means not just putting off our old nature, but also putting off the old practices that went with that old nature. And not just putting on the new self, but also embracing this ongoing process of renewal, being renewed after the image 
of our creator. Now, the emphasis to this point in Colossians, if you've been with us the last few months, is that God, through Christ, is the one who produces this change. This change is not something we do to ourselves or for ourselves. It is something we receive from God. It is grace. It is God's work in us. He has produced this change. We see in chapter 1, verse 12, he has qualified us. He has delivered us. He has transferred us into Christ's kingdom. We see in verse 20 and 22 of chapter 1 that God has reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ. So these are all things done to us, done for us by God. So it's his work, a work of grace. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, We have been, that's a passive idea, raised with Christ. So those who are changed, who have put off the old and put on the new, are those who have received grace, God's work in us for his glory. But now in chapter 3, Paul is shifting gears to show us that as those who have received and experienced such amazing grace, we must live in a certain kind of way. The transformation of who we are leads to a change in how we live. So the central idea this morning in the text that we've already read, the theme of this text, is that we must put on virtues that reflect the grace we have received. You and I, if we are believers, must put on virtues that reflect the grace we have received. This is a call to grow in this newness of life that we've been given, to grow in grace. Two truths we see this morning that will drive home this point. And the first is this, that growth in grace is a command to those who are made new in Christ. Growth in grace is a command to those made new in Christ. There's two parts to this. There's the command, and secondly, it's a command to a specific group of people, those who are made new. So look at this command. Paul tells us in verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and he goes on. The command is to put on. This command is an imperative, and it governs, really, the whole list of virtues that are to follow. So you really could read this, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience. There's really only one verb here, but it connects to all the different virtues that Paul will list. If you're reading out of the ESV this morning, as I am, the ESV reminds us of this grammatical relationship by spelling out, in verse 14, what is implied. It says, above all these, put on love, reminding us this idea put on is carrying through the whole passage, but it's actually in the Greek text that's implied. You won't find the verb repeated there. It says, above all, love, which binds everything together. But I agree with these translators that this verb is really governing everything in the list. Now, this instruction to put on these virtues, if you've read the first part of chapter 3, you'll know it corresponds to a twin command to put off the sins that characterize the old life. We saw that in verses 8 through 9. Put them all away. Wrath, anger, malice, slander. We're supposed to put off the sins that characterize the old life. So this command to put on is the flip side of that coin, the positive counterpart. And just like putting away or putting off, this command to put on brings to mind the imagery of clothing. I really like how the NIV translates it. Clothe yourselves with compassion. 
That's really getting at the right idea here. But we have to keep in mind, don't lose sight of the fact that this, friends, is a command. It's a command, and it is therefore to be obeyed with a sense of urgency. This calls for you and me to respond with immediate and intentional action. You know, sometimes the Bible tells us what to think or what to believe, and that's important. Sometimes the Bible tells us what to feel or or what we should desire, and that's likewise important. And then sometimes the Bible tells us what to do. This is one of those times. The Bible's telling us to do something, to put on these virtues. We put off the old, but that's only half the story. Our putting off needs to be followed by putting on. They go hand in hand. Together, these two commands are a necessary part of what Paul urged us back in chapter 2, verse 6. You can look back there with me. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's a certain kind of life that must go hand in hand with our faith in Christ. Off with the old, on with the new. So that's the command, but who is this command made to? We can look again at our text. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The basis for this command that Paul gives us is a threefold description of who we are in Christ. Before Paul tells us exactly what we must put on, he gives us the reason why we must put on these things by reminding us who we are. There's really two ways of making an argument, isn't there? One way of making an argument is to state your point and then give the reason. So you could say, hey, let's go swimming because it's 95 degrees outside. So you have your point and then the argumentation that follows it. Or you can do it in the other order. You can reverse it. You can give your reasoning and then make your point. You can say, hey, it's 95 degrees outside. Let's go swimming. And that's what Paul's doing here. He lays a compelling argument before us to put on the following list of virtues, reminding us who we are, what we have experienced, the grace that we have received from God through Jesus Christ. Growth and grace is a command for those who have been made new in Christ. Look at this threefold description he gives. It says, we are God's chosen ones. We are chosen by God. This same word is often translated as elect. It refers to God's gracious choosing of whom he would save in eternity past. Not based on what we would do or wouldn't do. Not based on anything about that. It's based simply out of his own love and mercy and grace. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world in eternity past. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This terminology of being chosen is a frequent description of believers in the New Testament. And it's one that echoes an Old Testament reality, the fact that Israel was God's chosen people. This nation had been singled out from among all the rest to belong to God. They were special, chosen by his grace. God did not choose Egypt. He did not choose Assyria. He did not choose the Phoenicians. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their offspring to be his special people. With the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation... Through Jesus, that good news, that gospel has exploded outside the bounds of Israel. 
in, in God's providence now, he is calling a people from every nation to be added to the church. As Paul and Barnabas preached in Acts 13, 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God is choosing no longer just Jews, but people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to belong to his people, to be part of his family for adoption as sons. And as many as are appointed, as many as are chosen, believe. Paul reminds these Colossian believers that God has chosen them to be his own, to save them, that he has appointed them to eternal life, chosen to pour out his unconditional grace upon them. And this is indeed a privilege. Matthew twenty two fourteen says that many are called, but few are chosen. The reality is this, that the gospel call goes out to, the, to all. It goes out to the world. But only those who are chosen of God are enabled by his grace to hear and to respond in faith. We recognize that what Jesus said of the disciples is also true of us. That you did not choose me, but I chose you. This doctrine often is disputed. Too many people engage in conflict about it. But this doctrine is not meant to cause confusion for the church. It's meant to give great comfort and to give us great confidence that we belong to God and that nothing can change that. In Romans 8.33, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, those whom God has chosen? Paul says, It is God who justifies. No one can bring a charge against us because God has chosen and loved and justified and sanctified. He is the one who accomplishes our salvation. And this is intended to be a comfort and give us great confidence that in eternity past, he chose us to be his own. And this means our future is secure. But this status we have been granted, the fact that we are chosen by God, brings with it great purpose and responsibility in the present. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's great implications to having this privilege of receiving God's sovereign grace. God's choosing of us by his grace is a profound display of his love for us, his kindness towards us, his compassion upon us, his forgiveness of us the very things that Paul is about to tell us we need to put on. And so Paul reminds us who we are chosen by God. This is not meant to confuse or to puff us up, but to urge us to humble and holy living. Because we're not simply chosen by God, we are secondly chosen by God to be holy. Look at what Paul says. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He tells us we're not only chosen, we are Holy, we are chosen by God, and we are secondly sanctified by God. This word that's translated here, holy, is the same word translated as saints in chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes to the saints and faithful brothers. Sometimes the word holy is used in the sense of being morally pure, in the fact that we pull away from evil and sin, and we strive to be righteous like our Heavenly Father. But holy can also be used to describe something that has been set apart for a special purpose. 
the special tools and instruments used for worship in the temple, for instance, in the Old Testament, were said to be holy. Now, a golden shovel can't sin. It's a golden shovel. It's used for scraping ashes out of the, uh, off of the altar. But that shovel, that tool had been consecrated, set apart for a special purpose. It was not just any old shovel. It was not to be used for any sort of activity. It was dedicated to a special purpose and significance. And so when Paul tells us that we are holy, he's not saying, you guys never sin. That's not what he's meaning here. He's meaning you are saints, those who've been set apart by God for God. This is who we are. God chose us, in fact, to be holy. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes about this. He says, you are a chosen race. There's that idea of election. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. He doesn't say you should be a holy nation. He says you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The implication here is that since we are set apart and made holy, we ought to act like it. We are called to be separate and distinct from the world, not to be just like the world. We are to be salt and light. We are to be dedicated to God's purposes. We've been spiritually purified by the blood of Christ. We've been positionally sanctified, set apart by God for God. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul told us that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul says this is who we are, God's holy saints. So the implication, therefore, is that our lives are to be brought more and more each day into harmony with our status as Saints. So we are chosen by God. We're also sanctified or made holy by God. And then third, Paul tells us, we are loved by God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God chose us to be holy out of his great love for us. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that in love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You know, we often throw the word love around somewhat flippantly. Perhaps some of you have been told, I love you, when those words were empty, hollow, perhaps well intentioned, but ultimately disappointing. The love of God is not like that. To be loved by God is to enjoy the greatest gift that is possible. How deep is his love for us? Well, just reflect on what Paul's been telling us. God chose us when he didn't have to. You are that loved, that God would choose you, that he would look through eternity and set his affections upon you and say, I want you to be my son, to be my daughter. Jesus died for us when we are his enemies. You are that loved. The spirit dwells in us because God desires intimate fellowship with us. You are that loved loved. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to share his eternal inheritance with us and that God is going to bring us into the joy of his presence to eternally satisfy our souls with his glory. You are that loved. 
So friend, even if your parents or your spouse or your children or your friends or your church fails you, you are loved by God. When you bury loved ones, when your spouse abandons or rejects you, or if that spouse and children that you dream of never come, you are loved by God. And that's not just motivational speaking. This is not just some therapeutic catchphrase. This is the word of God. You are loved, thus saith the Lord. We are recipients of perfect, unconditional, unfailing love. And to deny that, to forget that, to not be amazed by that is to show that you have no grasp of what the cross really means. Greater love has no one than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. In this, the love of God was manifested and that Christ Jesus died for sinners. Paul reminds us that we are chosen, holy, and loved. And this is the basis for his command. His command to put on, to do what we must do, is grounded in grace. Because you are chosen by God, because you've been made holy by God, because you are loved by God, put on the virtues that reflect this extravagant grace that you have received. This is not some burdensome command to keep the law. This is a gospel-driven encouragement to fulfill God's purpose for our redeemed lives. We don't put on these virtues to somehow earn God's grace, to earn God's love, or to become saints. No, this is a response to God's grace, a growing in grace as, though, as those who have received it, a pursuit of practical holiness as those who have been made positionally holy, a response of love by those who are deeply and perfectly loved. So growth in grace is, number one, a command to those who are made new in Christ. So that's point number one. But point number two is that growth in grace is a pursuit of love in all its expressions. It's a pursuit of love in all its expressions. The list of virtues that Paul gives us correspond very closely to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that God's Spirit is at work in us, empowering us, is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and faith and meekness and self-control, these are the kinds of things that spill out of a heart that is submitted to and dependent on the Holy Spirit. There's, so there's different lists like this in the New Testament. And this one is very similar to that list in Galatians 5. But it's also somewhat the exact opposite of the list of vices that we saw back in verse 8. Remember Paul says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, those things. You can see that it's almost the opposite. So we put off anger, and in its place, we put on compassion. We put off wrath, and in its place, we put on kindness. We put off malice, wanting bad things to happen to other people. And we put on humility, valuing their interests, desiring their benefit. We put off slander, that's destructive speech. And we put on meekness, gentleness. We put off obscene speech, and we put on patience. It's almost an opposite of what Paul has already told us. So let's look at this list that he gives us. First, he tells us, put on compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. 
This is, is caring for other people. And it's deeply felt in the gut. In fact, if you're looking at this in, in the Greek text, you'll see there's two words here that both have the idea of compassion or pity or, or um, uh, caring for others. And one of those words is the same word they use to describe your internal organs. <laughs> that this is a gut-felt, deeply felt compassion for other people. The King James Version translates it, bowels of mercy. You might say, what are bowels of mercy? That's, that's compassion that you feel for other people deeply in your gut, at the very core of your being. So this compassion is pity and tenderness towards other people's needs, other people's suffering. And it's more than just an external show of sympathy. It's something that is heartfelt. I like how the ESV translates it, compassionate hearts. It's something that comes from within. This kind of compassion is used of God in Luke 1, 78. We know that, that God is the comforter in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. In Philippians 1, chapter 8, we're told of the affection of Christ, which is this same word. And it's expressed towards us primarily in the gospel. Paul in Romans 12 says that I urge you by the mercies of God, referring to everything laid out in chapter 1 through 11. It's this idea of his compassion towards us that's been shown in the gospel. It's descriptive of God's grace towards us in Titus 3. When the goodness or the compassion, this kindness of God appeared, he saved us. This is something that God manifests perfectly. And therefore, something we are to put on as well. And as verse 11 points out, if you just look right before verse 12, we are all in this together. Paul's just told us that here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So we are all in this together, this Christian life. So we no longer group ourselves according to whether we are Greek or Jew. We don't have sympathies only for those who belong to our club. Because Christ is all and in all, we are to care deeply for one another. We're all in this together. Paul says, put on, therefore, compassionate hearts compassionate heart. Second, he says to put on kindness. So if, if compassion is this internal feeling, kindness is the expression of care for others. It's often translated as goodness, and it implies generosity. And this also is, is used of God in Romans 2.4, that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. This should be a virtue that is increasingly evident in our lives as well. Paul continues stacking up these virtues, these graces. He says, third, we are to put on humility. And this is not the false show of humility that Paul condemned. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 18, he says that some people are insisting on asceticism. It's kind of this show of humility. Um, verse also 23, he says, these things, all this external show has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. There's this false humility again. So not that kind of humility. Paul's already denounced that, the kind of humility that is just showing off. This is genuine humility, the kind that doesn't go around trying to prove that it's humble, the kind that isn't trying to get something by being humble, True humility is a right view of self that is a response to God's grace. I love 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? He says, what's really so special? 
about you? What makes you different than anyone else? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Isn't that the foundation for humility, realizing that anything good in us, anything good we've done, anything good that we possess is really a gift of God? So we can't take credit for something that God has done. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. At this point, we have to remind ourselves of what Paul just said in verse 11, that Christ is all, which means that I am not all. In all things, Christ must be preeminent, chapter 1 tells us which doesn't leave any leftover preeminence for me. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, we cannot make people impressed with ourselves and make much of Jesus and his word simultaneously. You have to pick who you're going to worship, who you're going to glorify, whose kingdom you're going to serve, who is it that you are most impressed with. It's either going to be self or Christ. Christ must be preeminent, not me. Christ is supreme, not the self. So like Christ, like our master, we must be quick to serve, willing to sacrifice, valuing the needs of others more than our own. Now what's amazing is that in Roman society, this was not considered a virtue. This was not something that was admired or commended or valued. It was something that slaves were expected to have, but not upstanding citizens. But in a very real sense, Christianity made it cool. Christianity valued this virtue because we worship a suffering servant and we want to become like him. So it's the gospel that has exalted Christ and the gospel that therefore exalts this virtue of humility. Paul says, put on, as those who've been chosen and made holy and loved, put on humility. Fourth, he tells us to put on meekness. Meekness might not be a word that you use very often in daily speech. How many of you guys would feel very flattered if someone said, man, that Caleb Booker is so meek? Do you take that as a compliment? It kind of sounds weird. We don't use that word in the English language very often, but we need to understand what the Bible means by meekness, what Paul is meaning here when he uses this word. This has the idea of humbly limiting ourselves for the sake of others, and that would be a compliment. That Caleb Booker humbly limits himself for the sake of others. It doesn't mean that you don't have a spine. It doesn't mean that you're a pushover. It means self-control, being able to treat others with gentleness even though you possess great strength. Um, the New American Standard Version, the NIV translated as being gentle. I love to think about, if you've ever watched National Geographic, I've never been to Africa, but have you seen one of those mother lions pick up its baby by the head? Have you guys seen that before? And then if you watch five more minutes, you'll see that same lion crushing the vertebrae of a zebra or something with those same jaws. So when that mama lion picks up its baby by the head, it's being gentle. It's not being weak. It's showing great care with those powerful jaws for the sake of that tender little baby lion. So when Paul tells us to be meek, to be gentle, he's saying you need to control your strength and treat others with gentleness. Not being like a bull in the china shop who's just plowing over things and breaking everything in its path. We are to be gentle or meek. James says that this meekness is the mark of true wisdom. In James chapter 3, verse 13. In Matthew 11, we are told that Christ is meek and gentle. We want to be like Jesus, don't we? 
And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it says that those who know Christ, those who belong to him are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So Paul tells us, put on meekness. And then fifth, he says to put on patience. Patience. I was talking with one brother in our church this last week, and he likes to use the word long-suffering. Because sometimes we have to suffer for a long time with our brothers and sisters in the church. Patience is a refusal to retaliate, a refusal to grow angry, or to quit and give up on people. Patience is also attributed to God as an essential aspect of his character. Aren't you glad we worship a God who is patient? Back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passes before Moses, and he tells Moses his name, who he is, the self-revelation of his character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Our God is so, so patient with us. Paul says that we are to put on patience. This is the opposite of the modern wisdom, isn't it? Modern wisdom says you don't have time for people who slow you down. If they're not helping you achieve your goals, then cut them loose. Cut all those toxic people out of your life. Live your life. Be you. And don't tolerate and put up with those people. That's modern wisdom. Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us that way? Because he doesn't. There's really two phrases here in in verse 13 that unpack this idea of patience. I spit all over my Bible. I have to wipe that off. Patience. All these P words. Unpack patience. Okay. Verse 13 explains what patience is. There's two parts to it. The first part is bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. So this is patience towards people that is required even when there's no sin. Did you know that that you can live life with someone, whether you're in the same house or in the same church, if you're in friendship, and even if they don't sin against you ever, you're still probably going to have to be patient with them because everyone has their own quirks, their own idiosyncrasies, that sometimes you have to put up with things that just rub you wrong. We need to be willing to endure annoyances, willing to endure inconveniences, willing to endure the burdens that are brought on by other people. Even when there's no sin involved, patience is necessary for there to be healthy relationships. Paul says, put on patience, bear with one another. Put up with each other's tics and, annoy, and annoying habits and, and honest mistakes and all those kinds of things. But there's a second level to patience. Not only are we to bear with one another, but secondly, and here he takes it a layer deeper, also we are to forgive one another. Forgive one another. This clause begins with and. He says, bearing with one another and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. This little word and indicates that there's something more here than simply bearing with. Because sometimes people are going to sin against you. And in those cases, when you have a biblical complaint, not a complaint like, I'm tired of you chewing with your mouth open, but the kind of complaint where it says, this person broke my confidence. This person wounded me with their words. This per- you fill, it, fill in the blank. This person sinned. In those cases, we are called to express patience by forgiving those people. And Paul really brings the gospel to bear upon us. 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I think we all like being forgiven. We all want that. And in God's grace, he extends that to us through his son, through the cross, at great personal cost. Sometimes we even like forgiving other people because I want to be at peace with my wife. And so I'm eager to forgive because then we're able to enjoy our relationship again. But sometimes I don't want to forgive. Sometimes it seems too hard or sometimes I just don't want to. And that's where scripture holds us accountable and says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We have received full and free forgiveness. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do this? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know what you and I paid in order to get this forgiveness? Nothing. Nothing. Do you know what Jesus paid so that you and I could get this forgiveness? Everything. Everything. This means that our forgiveness towards others must be just as free as the forgiveness God has extended towards us. And it means that, that just as we have, have received full and complete forgiveness from Christ, so we also must extend full and complete forgiveness towards others as the Lord forgave you. So you must also forgive. His forgiveness was full and free. So must ours be also. Jesus says 70 times 7. We never quit forgiving. You can go to Matthew chapter 18 and read a parable there. Jesus talks about a man who is forgiven a great debt by the king, but who would not forgive his fellow servant. And the message there is one of condemnation, that if you refuse to forgive others, you know what that really says about you? It says that you don't understand real forgiveness, which brings into question whether you've actually experienced it. Because you've, if you have experienced this kind of forgiveness from Christ, then you would know what it means. And you would feel the burden to share that same forgiveness with others. A refusal to forgive makes us hypocrites. It really does. That we're willing to receive grace but not extend it. We must not do that. Paul says, put on patience. And that's going to mean bearing with people who are sometimes hard to put up with. And it's even going to mean forgiving people who sin against you. The same way God has forgiven you. Our marriages, our homes, our friendships, our church, all will be stronger. These relationships will grow deeper if we give special effort to putting on patience, the kind of patience that bears with and forgives. Then Paul gives us one final virtue. Verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Really, each of the preceding virtues are expressions of love, aren't they? You can see love in each of them. Compassion is love for others who are hurting that is felt and felt deeply. Kindness is love for others that is shown and demonstrated by being good to them. Humility and meekness are evidence of loving others more than you love yourself. Patiently bearing with and forgiving others is a faithful demonstration of love when relationships get difficult. 
So really we can see love in all of those things, but Paul tells us that love is bigger than any one of those things and even more than the sum of all of its parts. And so it deserves a special mention. Love frequently receives this kind of attention in the New Testament. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the supreme virtue. Now abides faith, hope, and love, these three. But what's the greatest? The greatest is love. Love is not only the supreme virtue, it's also the sum of the law. How did Jesus summarize the entire law? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Love is the sum of the law. Love is the the first and primary fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is, and the list starts, with love. Love is seen to be the proof of our faith. John tells us that all men will know that we're disciples if we have love for each other. He records that for us in his gospel, that this is Christ's teaching, that the mark of our faith is our love for each other. So put on love. Paul tells us it's like the belt that holds the whole outfit together. So you've been putting on compassion and meekness and humility and all that stuff, and then love is the belt that ties it all together and holds it in place. But not only does love bind these virtues together in perfect harmony, but love also binds us together in harmony, doesn't it? It unifies. If you look back at all those sins listed in verse 8 and 9, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Those kinds of sins damage relationships. Those kinds of sins cause division in families and division in the church. Those kinds of sins cause conflict and hostility and breed bitterness and resentment. But all of these virtues that Paul shares here, driven by love, they bring healing and harmony and unity. They breed loyalty and safety in relationships, in the church. So put on love. Love holds all these virtues together and love will hold us together. I love what um, one author said in his commentary on this text. He records a historical anecdote that Plato at one point speaks of law as the bond that holds a city together. For a Christian community, regulations would never be enough. Only love will suffice. And I think he's right about that. So let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing with putting on these graces, these virtues? Would other people describe you as compassionate, as kind? Would they describe you as humble, gentle, patient, loving? If you're not sure, ask someone who knows you, preferably someone who knows you really well. Maybe they even live with you. Or they've seen you at your low moments or at your worst. Ask someone who will lovingly tell you the truth so that you can see what, what things you need to make special effort to, to put on and to, and to grow in those areas. Identify those areas where growth needs to happen. And then seek God's help to change. Pray for it. Reach for it. Take steps to achieve it. Put it on and obey this command as a response to God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you this morning might see some areas of weakness when you read through this list, but maybe you don't really care that much. Sadly, there are too many in the church who are content to be impatient. Too many in the church who tolerate or excuse their unkindness. Do you tolerate some of these sins in your life? Because if you do, Scripture tells us that these these things are sin. They need to be forsaken. Let's seek to grow in these areas. 
And if you are wanting to grow in these areas, be encouraged that, that Paul tells us that you're on the right track. These are the things that you are to put on. Not so that you can earn God's love, not so that you can become a saint, not so that you can, can somehow earn status of acceptance, but because you are loved and you are accepted. And if you're not a believer this morning, let me just ask you, if you don't know Christ and all of this is new for you, let me just tell you that what God wants from you today is not to just to try really hard to be a good person. You actually can't put on all these, all these things until God makes you new until God brings about that transformation of the heart. His grace will enable you and empower you to live like one who is chosen and holy and beloved. So if you don't know Christ today, come to him and receive his grace. And then join us as we seek to put these things on together. Lord in heaven, as we look into your word, we thank you for your love and your grace towards us that you've given us eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as those who have received grace, we would put on the virtues that reflect the love and grace that you've shown us. We pray that you would bring about growth in this church for your glory. Amen.